Welcome to Into the Breach, a reps and warranties policy podcast by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer, partners and co-leaders of the Transactional Underwriting Council practice at Cyforth Shaw, interviewing leaders from the industry and exploring the latest developments, market trends, and news impacting RWI and the transactional risk insurance markets. Welcome to the latest edition of Into the Breach. I'm your co-host, Brian O'Keefe, and joined by my fellow co-host, Jenna Usenheimer. How are you today, Jenna? I'm good. I'm, uh, it's before 9 a.m. this morning. I'm a little tired, actually, but I have a giant, enormous mug of coffee, so I'm doing okay. How are you? You're well caffeinated. On my way, for sure. On your way. Well, this is, a, this is another special episode, Jenna, because we are actually taping this from the same state, but it is not either of our home states. How about that, huh? I know, the great state of Florida, huh? I know. Jenna right now is in South Florida. I'm actually in North Florida in Jacksonville. So we're in different ends of Florida, but we have the whole, we have the whole terrain covered at this point in the Sunshine State, huh? <laughs> That's right. So I'm here with my parents who continue to be really adorable. Um, so and I will be here till the end of the month. And you're here for the month too, right? I am here for the month too. And a little bit of an unusual, yes. we just need a guest who's like in Orlando then. And then we would have the whole, <laughs> the whole entire state covered, right? We've become snowbirds. That's what it we is. have. In we the have. cold weather. Yeah. We've absconded from New York and Washington, D.C. and become old snowbirds before our time, I guess. So <laughs> it's, it's not a bad way to live though. Uh, you know, it's 75 and sunny here, but um, <laughs> yeah. well, we don't think our guest is from Orlando, but we are very, very happy to have him anyway. Uh, despite uh, the fact that he has not joined us in Florida, we are uh, extremely excited about the, uh, the podcast today. It's a uh, little bit of a different take, I think, than some of our other uh, podcast, but we have a very esteemed guest who had long awaited people. scheduling this podcast too. I know it was, it was for a long time scheduling, scheduling snafus, but then we had multiple people lobbying to have our guest on the show. So he was a very, uh, a popular choice. We're very happy to have Harry Balin, who's a managing director at Alliant join us today. And thank you very much for being here, Harry. It, it is such a pleasure to join you, Jenna and you, Brian. I, I don't have the privilege of being in the sunshine state. I am in the empire <laughs> state. I would like to be sunny like you and not imperious. So uh, I'd rather be in the sunshine state than the empire state today. Well, thank you for having me. We, we, sh we well, should. Well, I hear it's warmed up in the empire state. It's like in the 40s now, right? Yeah, that's just what the thermometer shows. But um, uh, it's lovely. I'm, 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 I'm enjoying being in New York. I love New York. I grew up in this area and I do love it. But I also love sunshine and I love Florida. So I won't envy you. I'll just be happy for you that you have sunshine. Well, that's very nice. Thank you. Jenna's parents do that too. They always, the frame of reference is what temperature is it in New York right now to feel better about whatever <laughs> temperature it is. Oh, every morning. Every and, uh, morning. Temperature <laughs> envy. <laughs> Well, we're really, really pleased to have you here, Harry. Thank you for joining us. And for uh, those who aren't familiar with Harry, um, you know, he has a, 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 I think your official role kind of at Align is a tax insurance broker, but we know that you've had a very uh, unique and interesting career. And we know that you also uh, have thought very deeply about issues around risk and risk allocation. And so um, perhaps, uh, you know, maybe just as an intro for our audience, just talk a little bit about uh, you know, what you're doing now at Alliant and how you got involved in this crazy uh, RWI world. 
<laughs> okay, I'm happy to do that. Uh, at Alliant, I am, it is true, I am doing tax insurance uh, and that entails uh, lots of other related things. Uh, I'm teaching at NYU in the tax LLM program and I'm just very engaged with the tax issues of the moment. We had a very important new tax bill uh, last year and we have new tax legislation and regulation uh, all the time. So that is uh, a part of my life and my professional life uh, especially. Uh, but I also do um, contingent risk quite actively that probably uh, is as much of my time as tax insurance is. So that's um, risks around litigation, uh, single uh, litigation risks, portfolios of risks, working with lit funders and financing around that. Um, and uh, our RWI is actually uh, the, the third uh, in, in those. Uh, so I'd like to be around everything relating to uh, specialty insurance and mergers and acquisitions and risks that because they are known risks, may be the ones that are excluded from uh, reps and warranties policy, but they are very interesting risks to take to insurance markets. And to, to put those risks on markets means to, to price them in a sense. And that's fascinating to me. Um, you asked how I got into it. Well, I, um, I did uh, too many years of education <laughs> before, <laughs> before going to law school. I, um, I, I did a, a PhD and I, I, I'm quite interested in intellectual history and actually the history of everything, including, including tax, including litigation, civil law, common law. Um, and uh, I, I went to law school as a second career. And I went to law school thinking that I would probably become an academic. And I guess having been a professor for I, I first started teaching actually in 1981 before you guys were born. Uh, and I've been teaching a variety of things, including- I was born. <laughs> you were born. <laughs> I've been teaching tax since 2003, I think. Um, uh, so I, I had a very, uh, very strong interest in the academic side of things. When I started law school, the Dean of Columbia Law School was Barbara Black, uh, a person that I uh, was very close to and her husband, Charles Black. And uh, in my first year, I went to Dean Black and I said, what is the most difficult thing taught at law school? What's the hardest thing in the law school curriculum? And she said, tax. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. And so that's kind of how to, and also tax is so richly historical. I mean, they're, they're, it is, it's difficult. There's a blend of things that you need to bring to bear analytically to understand the tax question. But so much of the tax law goes back to ideas around the turn of the 20th century. The, I mean, the tax law comes in 1913. And so much of corporate tax is coming out of the depression. And partnership tax is really evolved in the 70s, which is a very interesting decade in our economy. And it was a time of tax shelters and so on. So I, I find as a teacher that if you tell the story behind a doctrine or a code section provision or regulation, that it's vividly memorable. But if you just teach it as something dry, uh, dryly conceptual and uh, it's much more has a limited the students have a limited purchase on it if they try to understand it outside of a historical context so those things fit together for me um, I uh, I did a clerkship which I loved uh, with Judge Wilfred Feinberg in the Second Circuit um, and that was uh, anyone I think who's done a clerkship has said the same thing 
you sort of learn what law is in the clerkship more than you do in law. I loved law school, by the way. I don't know if that puts me in a minority, but I really did love law school. <laughs> and uh, but I was doing it after having been an academic and a PhD. I just found it fascinating the, to see the way law comes out the world. It's sort of any discipline. You have the world and you have the discipline. And there's always going to be a mismatch because, I mean, whenever we try to describe anything, there's our linguistic formulation. There's a thing described. So, you know, the, the, the law, it fascinated me to see the way the common law evolved ways of talking about what people do. So if you have notions of reasonableness that creep into the common law is because people were acting reasonably and then that just became legal standard. So whether it's a law of negligence or something relating to the way you interpret a contract. So I, I did love law school and I love tax law. My mentor in tax law was Professor Richard Stone, who uh, was a great man, a great teacher. He um, His death this year uh, was, was um, terrible event for uh, the many, many people who loved him and I will miss him very much, but we became very close friends uh, uh, after uh, law school. And um, and I ended up at <clears throat> uh, at Davis Polk, which uh, uh, recruited me in the, in the best uh, possible ways uh, by, um, I, actually there's a partner there, Bill Weigel, who, um, is a musician and a composer. Uh, he is retired, still teaching at NYU. He teaches a private equity class that I started there. And Bill would sort of take me to concerts. And uh, uh, I remember him taking me to the Metropolitan Opera and then and then to ball games and so forth. And uh, I love uh, music and I love sports. And I love the, I love that tax department, which is, which combines the utmost practicality uh, with uh, a very strong um, uh, grasp of, of the law. So it's, um, uh, you know, it's not uncommon to have at a tax lunch at Davis Polk, uh, very elevated conversations about kind of what the law is, means, and came and where it came from, combined with the most practical discussion of how to apply it in, in the interest of our-, our It sounds country. like our practice too, Jenna, like the, you know, High level intellectual, but also trying to be very practical for our clients. That sounds like the same sort of ethos that we have here, right? We try. Yes. We try. I don't know. So we have to drag some of the specialists kicking and screaming away from the theoretical into the practical. But we do. No meaning for we... any of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Harry, I think that's, I mean, it's a very, I mean, it's, a, it's you know, obviously you have a very different background, I think, even than, than most of our guests. And, and I think, um, you know, I think we were talking a little bit uh, in the, the pregame here about, you know, risk allocation. I think because at the end of the day, I think that's what transactional risk is really, mm -hmm. is really about whether you're doing tax insurance or, uh, you know, uh, contingent risk or RWI or even now, you know, with litigation funders. And I think, um, you know, sort of that theoretical way that the people for centuries have been looking at risk. I think that this whole transactional risk area is just the next way that this is now being yeah. viewed in, in the business world. And I don't know yeah. if you wanted to uh, reflect on that or what your thoughts were on that. Sure. I, I think that one of the things that I'm, I, first of all, I should say that I'm interested in risk in, in all of its manifestations, whether we're talking about uh, geopolitical risk or we're talking about uh, risk in everyday life. Uh, I, I find it to be a fascinating subject, both conceptually and mathematically. It, Danny Kahneman's book on thinking fast and slow, which uh, meditates on risk through 
the lens of cognitive psychology and experimentation is a thrilling book. Um, and I have the privilege of uh, knowing him a little bit. Uh, so so I, I am interested in risk generally. Also, the history of risk, as you said, is, is quite interesting. And when you think about it, 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 it tax lawyers all the time have to think about debt and equity. You know, is this debt? Is this equity? Well, that is, in a way, a question of risk. So the when an instrument is protecting principal and when that, for example, if you take senior secured debt, that reflects a certain view of risk on the part of the borrower and the lender. And the risk mitigation entailed in securing debt or in being senior is just a, one of the things that you think about if you're thinking about the question of whether the debt is debt for tax purposes. Once you don't have a security interest in collateral, it's, you might say, less debt-like. Uh, and once you're subordinated to other people who also don't have a security interest, you start to move towards equity. And then, you know, equity uh, is uh, entails a certain kind of risk. Uh, so if you look at a startup, the startup is facing a question, we need funding. Can, should we get a revolving line of credit? Should we find somebody, maybe a non-bank lender to lend us something? Should we take out a, a borrowing secured by our personal residences? Or should we go to a VC who will give us equity? They don't always think it through and realize and this is the first thing that I do in the private equity class that I teach, that the most expensive capital is equity capital. The equity guys might get 100x on their investment if you're a startup, and the lenders are going to get the 7% interest rate and so on. So the compensation that you might say, that's an example of how risk is rewarded. And the whole math behind the sharp ratio, the relationship between risk and reward, reflects the fact that different kinds of capital investments carry with them uh, risk, which in a in a world where the bid ask has been narrowed by a liquid market, uh, you you actually can discover the price of that risk. Uh, so financial engineering is fascinating to me, and a lot of what I worked on at Davis Polk involved that sort of how do you play with the downside, how do you play with the upside, can you sell a call at 120 uh, because you're willing to cap your upside, and then with that you could buy a put at 90. So you're actually you know taking your risk and you're sort of carving it up and selling off pieces of it in order to enjoy a return that fits the risk profile that 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 fits within your portfolio and what i think that we're doing in in let's call it uh, broadly transactional risk and uh, that will encompass known and unknown liabilities the stuff that is covered by an rwi policy and the stuff that isn't that might be covered by contingent risk policy or a tax policy is we're taking these risks and we're going out to let's say 25 insurance markets and by putting them on a market we're actually finding out there we're discovering what the price of that risk is and then once you start securitizing insurance policies or borrowing against them then you start to see more capital playing uh, and the more buyers and like any market the more buyers you have the the better the, your price discovery so it is fascinating that these risks which at one point were just looked at in a bilateral context in a highly emotional uh, context as well, where buyers and sellers might not always be uh, on the best of terms. Now you have a third set of eyes um, and that and what they're planning to do is to take that risk away in a sense or parts of it away and find out what the price of it really is. And that ends up being very efficient for everybody because if you're taking a tax risk and you're saying that you can insure it for two or 3% of the policy limit, well, that's probably a lower price than the two parties in the deal would have assigned to that risk. So you're basically making it more efficient for everyone. And that is kind of exciting. Uh, I, I think capitalism is a beautiful thing. And uh, I think putting things on markets, not everything, of course, 
but putting things on markets can help people. And, and that's what interests me about all this. Yeah. And I, and I think I've had the same feeling. And I think it's actually interesting whenever, um, you know, like when we're involved on the deal, it's like the underwriting council side of it, you know, we're advising our clients on what, you know, the legal risks are. But at the end of the day, it's the insurer that ultimately makes the business decision as to whether or not they're going to cover a particular risk or not cover a risk or exclude it or whatever. And it's, I mean, I find the whole process, you know, right. we're kind of not making that decision at the end, but we're involved in the what's happening and we're talking to our clients about right. it. Right. I find it to be fascinating. I mean, it's, uh, you right. know, it's, it's sort of this combination of, you know, legal world, you know, law school um, meets this like very practical uh, yeah. element to this. And, and it is, and it's um, yeah. it, combining it with, yeah. you know, how, how these kind of judgment calls are made and yeah. just watching this now, you know, on an almost yeah. daily basis that Jenna and I yeah. see this, I think it's, yeah. um, it's just been a, it's yeah. been a fascinating, uh, you know, it's been a yeah. fascinating development yeah. in, uh, in just finance and, you know, in the last 20 years. You know, as you say that, Brian, it, it occurs to me that one of the things that that uh, RWI, as well as the other transactional risk has done, is it's forced, certainly you see this if you get inside the head of insurers and reinsurers, it, ex, it explores the, the binary and non-binary quality of risk. So if you think about, and that's a very deep thing. So think about a duel, think about Alexander Hamilton. Uh, you know, that's pretty close to a binary risk. Um, uh, I think of all in the law now about the right, suppose that I build a house and it goes one inch on your property. You might have an equitable right to say, I have to tear down the whole house. But what the fact of that right does is it forces us to negotiate. And maybe I can just buy the, you know, the one inch from you rather than you're exercising the right that you have. So you can take binary risks, which actually lead to bad outcomes very often when they're viewed as only being binary and people can compromise. And that's actually just a part of functioning as a human being. You have to make compromises. You have to meet people halfway. You have to try to understand where they are coming from, so to speak. And when you are an insurer, you sort of have to look at the binariness of a risk. So if the policy limit is 200, you have to think about the possibility that you'll have to pay out 200. And so that is binary at the first at first blush. I pay 200 or I pay zero. But then the non-binariness comes in when you have a retention, when you have various types of risk mitigation, when you get to understand the risk better. And that sort of analysis of binariness and degrees of binariness goes into pricing. And the reason why uh, a litigation policy might be more expensive than, than uh, an RWI policy is priced precisely because uh, it's more binary. I mean, you sort of, you, you win or you lose and, and, and actually insurance companies aren't thinking so much about settlements. So, so it, it is fascinating to see how we've made all of this analysis more efficient uh, by, by bringing to bear insurance thinking, financial thinking, and legal thinking all together and common sense and markets. Well, and speaking of all that, can you talk to us a little bit about litigation funding and the work that you're doing there and how that's moving the ball forward and helping parties? Well, <clears throat> I, I'm working on uh, litigation insurance, uh, yeah, in particular, litigation insurance. Ju ju judgment preservation insurance. And there, I think it is uh, uh, a wonderfully rich thing to be involved in uh, because well, for all the reasons that we've talked about, this is certainly uh, a risk that uh, until recently was not really on markets. And to see the kind of understanding that you need to have 
of the risk to take it to markets and the data analytics behind that, and then to see the way insurance underwriters and, and carriers look at that risk uh, is, is always illuminating and it's very dynamic changing uh, really uh, every, every day. Uh, when you start to look at portfolios of litigation risks, that's also very interesting. You could have a portfolio of 40 litigation risks, and maybe you're confident about two or three of them. And from an insurance perspective, you might say that looking at the portfolio, two or three of the risks take you off risk because of your confidence in the outcome with regard to all 40. Uh, you just calculate the outcome, you look at it in a more or less binary way, and, and three risks, three positive outcomes could make up for uh, 37 negative outcomes. And then, you know, litigation funding involves a similar thinking. And there's also a binary quality to that. If you're funding a case as a litigation funder, uh, putting aside hedges and risk mitigation, that you win the case or you lose the case. Now, the, the winning outcomes are different outcomes, but there is a sort of win or lose aspect to it. And then when you introduce insurance and you say, I'm going to insure the risks that the litigation funder takes, again, you're making the litigation funders risk less binary. Uh, and you're sort of sharing this risk, and this is inevitable. I think that it's what we see in all markets that people. And for example, just look at the look at the history of hedging. It started with hedging uh, agricultural products. I mean, that's why the CFTC has such a large role in uh, derivatives and financial products because that's where hedging began with commodities. And if you don't hedge commodities prices, you can't have efficient markets for anything related to commodities. And um, and that's effectively what we're doing here is we're just putting every aspect of litigation and its funding on a market. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I think it's time to move into our quick hits, which is once more unto the breach, which our uh, loyal listeners will know are the same three questions. Basically, we ask every uh, guest on our podcast. So our first question is, and I actually don't know if this is the first or second, so it's exciting and maybe out of order. Um, what is the biggest change you expect to see in the insurance markets uh, in the next 12 months, if any? I expect to see more litigation insured uh, at, at earlier and earlier stages of that litigation in the tax area. I expect to see more audit risk insured. I expect to see more international risk insured, that's cross borders. And also just it's becoming more and more global uh, within uh, it, as a result of uh, treaties, multilateral agreements, uh, tax reform, and for many reasons. But I think that all aspects of insurance will become more international and global and we'll do more live litigation. And the third thing that I will say is that financial players play a bigger and bigger role as you start to um, use these risks uh, and or insurance policies in relation to these risks as collateral, either for uh, a, a simple monetization that's bilateral or in a securitization. So I think those are the biggest changes that I see in the next 12 months. So do you think we'll have to travel abroad to do like hands-on underwriting for those international? <laughs> well, Jenna, I, no? I, 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 I know that if we did that, you would only underwrite risks that are sort of, you would measure the, the desire yeah. of risk by its proximity to the Mediterranean. But um, the, uh, so Khan, for example, is a good place for risks and, and the, you know, the Cote d'Azur and, uh, the Amalfi Coast, those are places where there are- Oh yeah, the Amalfi risk. Coast would be a great place. Yeah, would you like that? So yeah, no, I, would. I do think that, I do think that, <laughs> that it, it is important to have relationships with lawyers and other important players around the world. And, you know, I, I found 
uh, that the day, literally the very, my very first day at Alliant, uh, that I was getting on the phone with people that I'd worked with my whole career uh, who were, uh, we started together. Uh, they, they were folks at uh, Cuatro Tassas in uh, uh, Barcelona and Uriel Menendez in Madrid. And we were talking about some, some Spanish risks. And so I do think that having those relationships internationally is important. And um, you got to, who, who are you going to call is, is the question sometimes with the risk. So in order to do, and right now I'm working on a, a, a risk under the Mexican-Netherlands Treaty. So, you know, you got to know something about the the players uh, internationally, and I think, in order to get your arms around the risk and take it to market in a in a smart way. So whether that involves travel, Jenna, it just depends on you know basically temperature. <laughs> well, I think it should. So I think when you're going to markets and you're pitching this, you should keep in mind under any council would like to travel. Okay, got it. Got <laughs> um, it. Right. <laughs> well, our Cyforth overlords listening too, they have to know that we need to be there for business purposes. So um, this is actually uh, a good test to see if anyone listens to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'll be sure to advocate for travel. Okay. There we go. go. There we go. Well, that's great. So the second question, Harry, we ask everybody uh, is, you know, a piece of career advice that you would have for somebody. Uh, who may be interested in getting involved in transactional risk broadly. Um, we know that I don't think anybody really goes to law school or business school thinking they're going to do this. Everybody kind of ends up uh, in this usually after doing something else. But what would be a piece of career advice you would have for, for somebody interested in this field? Well, I, I want to try to say something that hasn't been said by everybody. Uh, but I would say uh, in all areas of life and, and in all careers, uh, one has to remember that it's not only IQ, but EQ, you have emotional intelligence is extremely important. I think that a big part of emotional intelligence is of course, social life. Um, and I would say reading and curiosity. So I think that one of the, I, I, a friend of mine who runs what I think is the best middle market private equity fund said to me that the most important quality in an investor is curiosity. And I would say the most important quality in anyone doing anything I was a short order cook uh, at, at, when I was in high school. Uh, the most important thing is curiosity. Yeah, I mean, you have to be curious about how much coffee you pour into the coffee cup when the customer might be adding uh, you know, milk or cream to it. You have to be curious about how anything is done in order to be do it well. To do it well. If you're gonna deal with material contracts in RWI, you have to be curious about, a little curious about what these contracts actually are about. Why is it important? Why are contracts with suppliers important? Why are contracts with customers important? Why are anchor tenants important? Why are, you know, so I would say that being, you can learn stuff. You don't have to know everything, uh, but I think it's absolutely vital to be curious, uh, to be emotionally intelligent. And I always advise people to read. I, I don't think you can be alive in, in the most vivid sense if you have the ability to read and you don't read. So reading, uh, social life, uh, uh, curiosity, emotional intelligence. What kind of reading are, do you recommend? Because I feel like you're not like a thriller romance novel kind of guy. <laughs> I do think that reading, that the exercise of reading, I, I, I want to sort of endorse it sort of uh, fully, but you asked me what what uh, what is exciting to me or what what helps me. I think that that history always helps uh, because I do think that I do think that we have a situation in which we have, for example, uh, an unemployment rate of 3.4%, and we have different ways of measuring uh, inflation, most are unfortunately backward looking, and we have monetary policy, and all of this affects our clients. 
it, it affects them uh, as much as anything could affect them. So I think that when you uh, read about the inflation of the 1970s or you read about the uh, economic situation and political situation of the 1930s and 40s, uh, but I would say that uh, it's important to understand the 17th century. For, for me, it's helpful or, or to understand the, the um, debasement of the currency in the four, in fourth century Rome and how that maybe led to the decline of the Roman Empire or the advent of the guilder as the world's reserve currency in the 17th century and how it was eclipsed by the English pound by the end of the century as a consequence of four Anglo-Dutch wars. So the Dutch Republic gets eclipsed and then the English pound and then how the English pound gets uh, replaced as a world's reserve currency by the US dollar. So I th actually think that that which sounds uh, maybe a little pointy headed, it, it affects the way I see. I might not come out of my mouth on a on a call with a with a client, but I think that it's an it, it helps me to understand pricing. It helps me to understand how the insurance company is reserving against risk in a low return environment where returns are negative real returns because uh, the returns are low in nominal terms and there's high inflation. You got to understand that the insurance company, if it writes a policy limit of you know 200 million, it's got to sort of have reserves that are adequate to satisfy claims of 200 million. And that needs to be done in an environment where yields are whatever they are in real terms and in nominal terms. So I think that history is very helpful. I happen to love also uh, literature of all kinds and qualities, poetry and fiction. And I, uh, poetry. I love philosophy. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm not a big poetry fan. That's for sure. Okay. Well, so we have well, one. Our mystery... Don't forget that song lyrics are poetry. So anyone who likes music probably is, is oh. enjoying poetry in its highest form. <laughs> well, that's a nice way to think about it. Okay. And now our mystery fun question. So for our listeners who don't know, our guest knows our very own Rodum, who is our tax specialist, because he was his law school professor. And so we want to know what your favorite, or we'll take least favorite, Rodum memory is. And, and this is this is like this is the only reason why we really have you on, Harry, because we, <laughs> you know, Rodum, Rodum is a very. Uh, proud tax lawyer and the thought of him being grilled under the Socratic method and uh, uh -huh. you know not knowing much about tax because he always jokes with Jenna and I that we are like tax lawyers as like the, a tax lawyer as to underscore our own uh, uh, lack of tax knowledge so we are really curious about a good Rotom uh, memory here well I, I this is the, also a good <laughs> Rotom listen <laughs> this is 20 years uh, yes. ago this is 20 years ago, but I do have several uh, memories of uh, of Rotem that I that I cherish. He was relatively new to the United States, and Rotem's last name is Bar Kokhba, and Bar Kokhba led a revolt against the Romans uh, in the second century. So I haven't met many, very many people whose families chose the name Bar Kokhba. So our first conversation was about the fact that his Bar Kokhba, and he was, I think, stunned that I knew who Bar Kokhba was and that I was interested in this question of how they decided on that name. And I just found that he was a person who, who uh, combined openness and intellectual curiosity and friendliness. And I just sort of fell in love with the kid. I, I thought he was a super. Aww, guy. I just, but we uh, feel the same way. Yeah. And, 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 and I just remember also, there's always this question, you know, sometimes the, the legend of, I don't know if you guys know Lou Steinberg, who's now at B of A Securities, but he uh, taught, he teaches at NYU and he taught the advanced corporate tax problems class and actually pulled me into that in 2003 uh, for many years. And he 
uh, was a very, very exceptional student, is a very exceptional intellectual and human being and, and very practical um, investment banker who's coming out of a tax law background. He was a partner at Acrobath. The legend uh, about Lou is that he would sit in these LLM classes with his hands folded, didn't bring a pencil, didn't bring a piece of paper, didn't even blink. He would sit there and his professors in the first semester asked, you know, what's he doing? And the answer was thinking. And he got, I am told, the legend is the highest grade in every class, but never took a note, never, you know, wow. you know that kind of thing. And I'm always interested. And there was a, a quality, you know, I don't think that students always appreciate. Even there were 60 students in Rotem's class. Uh, I remember because there were 60 seats and they were all occupied. Um, and you could see, you can always see the quality of attention that someone brings to something. And what you could see in, in Rotem was he's sort of sitting on the edge of his seat, leaning forward. You know, <laughs> it was just this intensity uh, of, of curiosity and, and attention. So and curiosity to me is more important. I mean, I, I, you know, you can assign a grade to a paper, but the most important quality, if the person is smart and, and curious, is the curiosity because you will get there. I mean, I don't know what a grade Rotem got because it's anonymous. I'm assuming he got the high grade or maybe the highest grade in the class. But what I did see- Oh, it's anonymous to you too? That's is, is curious. The curiosity, yeah. The curiosity was, was, was what I found really quite wonderful. That's, well, that's a great story. And we, we would share in that sentiment. And he's been a very uh, valuable team member for us and uh, an even better person. And um, it was just, uh, uh, it, for the listeners, Rotem's actually the one who introduced us to Harry here. And um, it was, uh, it's just wonderful that um, I, we can't agree more, I guess, I think is uh, what our sentiment would be about that. So, um, well, thanks so much, Harry. We really appreciated you coming on today for this uh, uh, theoretical uh, look at uh, where, you know, where risk has been and where it is headed. And, um, you know, we really appreciate you being our guest today on the podcast and for joining us. This was a really fantastic episode. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you thank very, you. very much. Enjoy Florida. Enjoy the sunshine. Thank you so much. Well, Jenna, we will enjoy the sunshine, uh, even at our different ends of the state. And, we will see where we're at next time. I don't know. We may have some new travel plans after this show based upon. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> much more exciting places than Jacksonville and West Palm, huh? West Palm is pretty exciting, but okay. Point taken. I don't know. Jacksonville to, to be determined. I've not been here long enough. So, all right. Well, I, I, I recommend the Amalfi Coast, I told you. There we go. There we go. <laughs> all right, yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us again for the latest uh, episode of Into the Breach. And until next time. Thank you for listening to Into the Breach. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, please visit rwipodcast.com. The views and opinions expressed by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Seifarth Shaw, LLP, its partners, or its employees. The podcast does not provide legal or other professional services. This podcast is made available by the lawyer publishers for educational purposes only, as well as to give you general information and a general understanding of the law not to provide specific legal advice. By listening to this podcast, you understand that there is no attorney-client relationship between you and the lawyer publishers. The podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state. As defined in the State Bar of New York's Code of Professional Responsibility, this podcast is considered a form of attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee similar outcomes.